Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Sarah Maxwell is one of the most gentle people you will ever meet. She leads with love and compassion and has spent her career giving that to others, especially those who are dying. As a music therapist, Sarah finds the right song to comfort those who are dying and to bring their families peace. She's provided music therapy to adolescents, adults, geriatric patients, those with Alzheimer's, autism, and the chemically dependent. She also uses music to help those in domestic violence shelters. For 12 years, Sarah was a music therapist at the Hospice of the Western Reserve in Cleveland. She's a board certified music therapist with a Bachelor of Science and a Master's of Arts degree in music therapy. Her clinical expertise ranges across the lifespan but focuses mostly on hospice, bereavement, Alzheimer's, mood disorders, and wellness. And Sarah also recently gave the gift of life to her Uncle Bob by donating one of her kidneys. Sarah joins me to talk about offering comfort and compassion to ourselves and to others. Sarah, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Regina. And Sarah, you were also my piano teacher for a time, and I just loved how patient you were with me. It was a joy. Thank you. I remember you telling me, I think it was a Mozart piece I was trying to learn, and you were talking about like the tinkling of the sound like a music box, how it was supposed to sound in one hand, and you just had these vivid ways to express how music is supposed to feel, so I just want to thank you. I'm still not very good at it, but I still love playing, so I appreciate all your expertise. That's all that matters. So, Sarah, I want to talk, first of all, in your life, the big detour that happened in your life was facing an eating disorder. And I want to talk about that because that whole idea of how we comfort ourselves, how did that come about for you, your issues with food? So I started using food more as a control away. That was the only thing I could control uh, pretty much in my household. And uh, Growing up in a household that had addiction, untreated addiction, some mood disorders. And so it first started as control, like I said, and then it, it became also a way to comfort myself, as you mentioned, comfort. You sort of started around 12, and I ended up in a, a treatment center at age 18. And at that point, I was either restricting to point of only drinking Gatorade for days, uh, just four sips for each meal, to uh, binging on mass quantities of food, a massive amount of laxatives, and uh, purging also through exercise. Let me pause for a minute. So it sounds like you had a lot of chaos in your home and a lot of emotional trauma and drama. And so food became probably a way to manage something. Is that is that what it feels like, that you have control over something when you can't control everything else? Yeah, I feel like that's the way my eating disorder started. And I also, um, it was a coping tool because, you know, my parents did the best they could with what they had, but I wasn't taught like coping tools that were healthy or how to have a healthy self-esteem. You know, they talk about hitting a bottom. Did you hit like a bottom when it came to your eating disorder? Was there any one moment that you said, okay, I am done here? I did. I did. And that, that moment is very clear to me. And luckily, I had um, made a connection to a wonderful um, psychologist in the town that I was going to college in in my freshman year. And he said to call any time. 
And I did not want to call him because I didn't want to bother him. But this day, I had this, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I can't do this anymore. And I don't know how to stop. And that's really when the door opened and I called that wonderful psychologist and he said, and I told him what exactly what I told you. And he said, well, good. And I didn't think that was good news to hear, but he said, <laughs> that's what it takes to recover. And he was right. Now, you know, when people quit drinking, they quit drinking, they don't drink anymore, but with food, you have to eat. So I imagine that must be more difficult to figure out how do you eat in a, I don't hate to say the word normal, but in a, in a way that's healthy. So how do you do that? How do you decide how to eat now? My relationship with food was completely distorted. And honestly, I had no idea how you were supposed to eat normally. And that wasn't modeled very well in my household. So actually, um, I did go myself into treatment and worked with a dietitian who also taught me cooking and you know I was given an individualized food plan based on my height and my size and my exercise level of what kind of energy and what kind of food I needed to be a healthy person. I did weigh and measure my food for quite a long time and I'm and that's not for everybody. It was actually a relief for me because it took the guessing out of it because based on how I was feeling, I would want to undereat or overeat. So it just took the guessing out of it. And then eventually I learned how to like, okay, this is about a serving size, kind of eyeball it. But I've worked with dietitians for years and years. So how, how many years now do you feel like you've had your, I don't know if you call it like food sobriety or your food under control or what the terminology is? Yeah, luckily, I'm very, very lucky that at age 18, I was very willing to do what anybody said, and I knew that my way was not the right way because I tried all those ways, and so my recovery began at 18, and now I'm 47 as of November 3rd, a couple weeks ago, and I'm still um, in recovery. Wow, well, that's that's quite a long journey. Well, I want to segue into music because... You know, music is such a great comfort, and it sounds like it's always been part of your life. When did it When did it become like where you knew this is who I'm going to be in the world, that music is my thing? Sure. I, I found out that music was going to be a profession my junior, senior year in college, I mean, high school, excuse me. But I started laying under the piano while my mom would play at age three and four and, and begged for piano lessons, but no one would take me until I was six or seven. And so I decided uh, in my junior, senior year, as I was trying to apply to start applying to colleges, that my two loves were people and music. And I didn't know whether to study psychology or to study music performance or music teaching. So luckily, I was a band geek as well, as a piano player, and my band teacher steered me to a college that had music therapy, and when I learned about music therapy, I thought, that's it, that's it. I love the image of you uh, laying under the piano listening to your mom play. That's just beautiful. It must have really been a real comfort to you, because it isn't that way for every child, you know. 
Yeah, it was a real comfort to me. And it was actually a beautiful connection between my mom and I. And um, we had a piano teacher that would frequently have us practice duets and perform duets at recitals. And, it, and um, you know, my mom was very instrumental and had a lot to thank her as well as the piano teacher. Most people love music, but you actually chose it as a career and chose to study it. What was the reason you really said, okay, I love people, I love music, and I'm going to do this with it? Well, one thing is I knew it had been very therapeutic for me in helping me get through things that were happening in my household growing up. And I I knew I loved people, and I knew I loved music, and... I was connected by my band teacher to a college. I had music therapy. Believe it or not, I saw a 2020 on music therapy and the use of music therapy with children on the spectrum and how effective it was. And it was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. So for you, music has been a comfort and now you use it to comfort others. Did you right away move into the hospice work with it? You know, I didn't, Regina, and there's a lot of little detours in that decision. Uh, First, when I went to college for an undergrad for music therapy, I was um, determined or thought I just wanted to work with children on the spectrum and that would just be it. I did work with a child on the spectrum. I didn't really fall in love with it. I, I worked with like different populations in college and I ultimately chose and was accepted to, uh, we have to do a six-month internship of 40 hours a week in um, music therapy setting as part of the degree. And I was accepted to a music therapy internship in Cleveland, Ohio, at a hospital that served inpatient mental health for adolescents and adults and geriatrics. And then also, um, I got to have experience in, at the bedside in the medical setting and in going in for patients going into surgery and for chemically dependent women. So you're at the bedside of somebody, whether it's in a hospice or an ICU or surgical unit. How do you uh, initiate a conversation about music? Like what's your starting point? What's your like entry line? How do you introduce the whole like, concept of it? That's a great question. Sometimes you have to go in the back door and not even bring an instrument with you (laughs) because people are really scared and like, oh, I can't sing, I can't play. And they don't understand that this, I'm not asking you to perform for me. And it's um, just to use as a therapeutic tool um, in a collaborative way, if that's possible, or in a passive way, meaning they can listen. And then there's patients that will be unable to respond to let me know. So I'll always be checking in with their family members of what would bring them comfort musically. Sometimes that's with words. Sometimes that's without words. And I use a lot of different instruments. So do you sing to them? Like, I don't know a whole lot about the, the, uh, what a music therapist does. I mean, I know the concept, but the idea of like, you're right next to the bed. Do you say, would you like a song? Do you offer like a few options? I always offer options. Um, Choice is imperative to people, especially in a medical or um, psychiatric setting, because their choice has been taken away from them. They don't get to choose when to eat, when they have to take their medicine. So um, I bring different instruments with me. I I bring a a guitar, I bring a Native American flute, I bring different percussion instruments, 
And I, I mean, I can ask like, what kind of song um, really touches your heart or what kind of music do you enjoy? Sometimes I do sing and music therapists in undergrad do um, become proficient in guitar and voice because those are your two most portable instruments pretty much, especially the voice. Sometimes singing words will be distracting or distressing to a a patient, especially if they have a brain tumor or end-stage Alzheimer's and can't understand language. So humming with an instrument may be appropriate. So are there any songs that tend to bring the most comfort? Like when you think of the ones people tend to like the most, which songs would those be? I will tell you that I... I can't count the number of times that I've played and sang Amazing Grace. That seems to bring, and I don't know if that's because I worked in hospice for so long, but that seems to be a go-to for many. Um, I did work with people of other faith and support their faith if they want, if that's the therapeutic need. Uh, One patient in particular found the Beatles very comforting, and um, she had a lot of anxiety about dying and her disease process, but so let it be. I just sang it over and played it over and over to her in a very soft uh, way that matched her breathing. I watched her breathing and her chest moving, and and I would sing her to sleep because that was the time that she could actually not be anxious. It sounds so beautiful to have somebody sing you to sleep. You know, we do that for our children, but to, as an adult to be on the receiving end of that, it must be quite beautiful. Music therapy, and I think any therapeutic setting, it's definitely both ways. And it's a sacred space that the music brings. Uh, And I always talk about there being a triangle in the room, especially if if it's one-on-one. Then the three points would be, one point would be me, one point would be the therapist, I mean, the client or the patient, and the other uh, point would be the music or the instruments. Interesting, that triangle idea, the three-part. What's like the most unusual request you've had as a music therapist? So when I began working in hospice, and luckily I had in my internship a music therapist that was working in hospice, and she let me do some hours with her and introduced me to some hospice books, and I just fell in love with it and was able to get a job in that, my dream job. I was really surprised that people at the end of life wanted, some of them wanted to take music lessons. So I had a gentleman that wanted to learn how to play guitar and we made it happen. And he was a little more mobile. And then I I worked with a patient who was completely bed bound and was, uh, had end stage um, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And she was on a breathing machine, a CPAP that was breathing for her. And she was determined. She let me know she wanted to learn how to play piano. So we made it work, brought in a keyboard, a battery powered keyboard, and we just set it up at her bedside and her favorite artist was Elvis and she learned how to play an Elvis song so the biggest surprise is that there's so much living to do and healing to be done that can be done at the end of life that's really fascinating to think about it because sometimes we feel like well the door is closing it's too late what if people in hospice taught you about how to live you've been around so many people dying what has that done for you as kind of the gift they've given you 
it's been a huge gift for me. I would say probably one of my addictions has been perfectionism in my life. And that's really been challenged in hospice because you learn what's important and what is not. I've never met somebody on the store that said, I wish I would have worked more. I wish I, uh, my house was cleaner. <laughs> uh, it, it's all about relationships. And, you know, those are the things that matter. So I imagine you hear some of their regrets. I do. And, and not to reveal anything private, anybody share, but in general, what do people tend to regret at the end of their lives that might help us live better lives? Also relationships, uh, regrets and relationships is the most common theme. Um, sometimes I can help them repair a relationship by writing a song to a family member. And sometimes I just need to comfort the patient that it's a relationship that will not be prepared repaired before they die. And that must be difficult to know somebody is on their way out of this world and they still haven't spoken to their child or a parent. How do you kind of bridge that, not that gap, but maybe help them find peace with having that brokenness just be there? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a big burden for you to have to help them. Mm, yeah, I think that what we've done several things as we, I've helped write something that's called an ethical will and any of your listeners can you know google that and that's putting your values and your hopes and your dreams and your wishes and even regrets down on paper and then it's given to the family we don't know if it's ever read you know even um, music compilations of songs that have messages in them of what they want to convey to the person that they have hurt the biggest thing that you can give somebody is to be present in their pain, just to be a witness. When you say be present, you mean to just just let the person feel what they feel and just don't leave, don't try to fix it, just be there? Just be there. Be in the silence. Be comfortable in the silence. Don't feel like you have to fix it with words because that's not going to work. That doesn't help. To just let things unfold Music therapists do have some training in psychology and counseling skills. And those are tools that I will use with a client. But sometimes you just need to let them feel. And that is a way of walking through it. All right. Well, we are already at the halfway mark. I want to pause and thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guest, Sarah Maxwell, a music therapist. I know you have many podcast choices, and I'm grateful you chose to listen to mine. Before we move on to your kidney donation, which I find just amazing, I just want to ask Sarah, in our own lives, how can we choose music for whatever our personal needs are? Like, how do you, when you're like, oh, I'm feeling really scared today, or I got a lot of anxiety, or I'm really mad at so-and-so, like, how do you go to choose the music to help you find maybe a, a, an exit ramp for that, that emotion? How do you even start with, what, what do I choose to listen to today? Absolutely. You can definitely use music as a therapeutic tool for yourself, and I highly recommend it. It's different for each person, of course, but so some people like, if they're sad, they like to listen to sad music because it helps them work through it. 
some people, if they put on sad music when they are sad, it will make things worse for them. So they may need to choose something more upbeat. I personally connect to lyrics and sometimes and choose songs that have messages of strength. But I will tell you there are times that I'm too anxious for words. My personal go-to and my playlist that I use for surgery was all very slow piano music that I did not know because if uh, because of my music training, if I know a piece, I will tend to analyze the key chain <laughs> or how the person's playing or I should really learn to play that so I get in my head. So I choose music that I don't know so I can stay out of my head. And it's made, of course, a huge difference in my life. And that's why I offer it to others. And then I also use it for my kids. <laughs> so um, when we're getting a little wound up, we'll just put on that playlist. And it's called, I made a playlist for myself called Peaceful Mind. And Oh, that sounds beautiful. But- I love the idea of playlist too. Pick, pick a playlist. Well, I could talk forever about music because it's just such an endless topic, but I want to move into this year. You did an amazing thing. You donated a kidney to your uncle. Tell us about how, how that decision came together. Did he ask for it? Did you offer? Tell us from the start of that, how that unraveled, how that unfolded. Sure. Well, I think, you know, there's been little seeds that have been planted for me along the way. And one of the seeds was working in hospice and having patients come in that are choosing to stop dialysis because it's really not a way to live. It's not a quality. It does extend your life. It doesn't give you quality of life. And just being curious about that decision and sad that that person didn't receive a kidney. There are approximately 90,000 on the waiting list for kidney in our country, people. And then I met my husband and his lovely sister, uh, before I met him, donated a kidney to this uncle. And uh, they, uh, this uncle and uh, at least one child has a disease, kidney disease, genetic kidney disease called PKD, and that's polycystic kidney disease. Then Aunt Glenna, Bob's wife, she's a nephrology nurse, and she chose to donate a kidney a couple of years ago to a non-directed donation, which means she doesn't know who receives the kidney. Then she posted, I think in December of last year, that Uncle Bob would be needing a new kidney within the year. And I don't know, but for some reason I was interested in, in that. That piqued my interest. I thought about it a little bit without talking about anybody. And I texted Aunt Glenna and I said, well, you know, I didn't know, let her know it was me. But I said, you know. <laughs> I have a friend. <laughs> yeah. What do they do? And. And then she let me know a few things. And then I texted my husband and I said, Hey, I'm thinking about being a kidney donor. And my heart just became joyful when I put that out into the world. And it just felt like oh, the right thing for me to do. And it was something I really wanted to do. Now that's a big decision. You're also the mother of two. You have two, two boys, 10 and eight. And 
you know, I've heard people say, well, I would offer a kidney, but what if my child needs it someday? Or what if somebody else needs it? Like, how do you make that decision knowing like you've only got one chance to do this for somebody? That is hard because if I had eight kidneys, I would give all of them away <laughs> except one. <laughs> um, I would do it again in a heartbeat. So luckily, my children do not have a genetic kidney disease and they're healthy. Of course, anything can happen at any point, but I have chosen not to live in fear, but to be an example to my children of ways to give back to society, to give to others. And I will tell you, it's that I'm a privileged person and that my husband, I'm not a single mom, and my husband was able to financially support us through that. You can receive money if you apply and say, I would like to be a kidney donor. You can get up to $15,000 to support you through uh, the healing process. So again, it's, I am in a position of privilege and not everybody can choose to do that. So did you have any fear at all about this, about your own health being affected? I didn't because I'm very lucky that Aunt Glenna is a nephrology nurse and I can ask all kinds of questions and there's a wonderful book. Uh, She recommended a hundred questions to ask before you donate And the battery of tests that went on for days to make sure I am at peak condition and health, Um, it's amazing, but they actually show that kidney donors are more healthy and more likely to live a healthy life because everything has been thoroughly checked. Interesting. So you get ready for it. Now, how do you actually break the news to your uncle? Did you tell him? So, uh, I just kept communicating with Aunt Glenna because Aunt Glenna could um, help me navigate the medical system and how to find out. And I didn't even know my blood type. (laughs) I'm a O positive, so I'm very lucky. uh, O blood types are uh, considered universal donors. You can donate to any blood types. But amazingly, Bob is actually also O positive. Glenna did let me know, like, hey, I just so you know, I haven't told Bob anything. And I was like, oh, uh, you can tell him. I'm, it's not a secret. And, you know, we'll just hope for the best. And so it worked out. So you donate your kidney, you go through the surgery. And it, how, what's the recovery like for you? What, what do you have to go through to recover from this? How long does it take? What's it like? Is there pain? Mm-hmm. I'm a pretty sensitive person. I'm vegan. I haven't had a drink of alcohol or illicit drug, um, illegal drug since age 18. And I had only taken one pain pill in my life and that was at age 16. And it made me feel pretty terrible. So I didn't take it again. So I knew I was going to be pretty sensitive. I did talk to the, the kidney donation team, my team, they connect you with a team. And just to let them know my concerns. So I was pretty snowed and could hardly lift my head. And after surgery, because they had me on some pretty strong meds that would have been good for one person, but too much for me. I had the most amazing angel nurse who was the most patient. Uh, She changed my meds three times for me. (laughs) 
because you know, I would, I have a, a wonderful support network on Facebook on a kidney donation, um, support page. And, you know, everybody's like, get up and walk, get up and walk, get up and walk. And I was like, I can't walk. I can't even <laughs> And I was really feeling disappointed about that. Cause I knew it was really important for me to be walking and get the catheter out. And, um, eventually we got things turned around and, that nurse got me. I wasn't able to walk that night, but I was able to stand at the bedside. So there you go. And you're doing well. When when was the kidney donation? What was the date? August twelfth, twenty twenty, is the was a kidney donation date. I felt amazing at week two. The next day, I did not feel amazing, <laughs> and uh, learned another lesson of perfectionism and patience of listening to my body and um, I had some migraines and some like lightheadedness. I did not have pain. I had extreme fatigue and my body is worked its way out and I'm all back to my normal self. I'm so glad to hear that. And Bob is doing well. Bob had a little scare. Uh, he got admitted to the hospital and now he is, Jane, really, really well. well. I'm glad to hear that. We just have a minute left. I wondered, did you turn to music at all to help you through that experience? I did. I made myself a surgery playlist. And I encourage you, if you're having surgery, to start about a month before listening to your playlist and kind of emotionally preparing yourself um, by connecting to the music, uh, I recommend deep breathing with the music um, and because you will train your brain to know that when that music comes on, oh, this is my relaxation time. That's beautiful. So you'll be relaxed going into um, surgery and they show the more relaxed a person is going into surgery, the less pain they will have coming out of surgery. Beautiful. Well, Sarah, thank you for sharing that. It, you brought back a memory when I had my first chemo. I was really afraid to get chemo for breast cancer because um, I knew I'd lose my hair two weeks later. So I took a CD player. This is before we had more, you know, better. Uh, my cell phone had music and all that. But I played Louis Armstrong singing What a Wonderful World. And as soon as the chemo hit me, that song hit me. And it felt like I could invite that healing in instead of feeling like um, resisting it. I think sometimes we resist the medicine because we're afraid. And music, it felt like it opened something up inside of me. So thank you for the work you do to open up that kind of healing in others. It's really beautiful. Sarah, um, I want to thank you for joining us. What's the best way for people to connect with you, whether it's a website, social media? What's the best way for people to find you? Sure. My, I'm working on finishing my work website, but currently you can reach me at my uh, work email, my business email, which is in the music therapy at gmail.com. And I just like to give a plug for Aunt Glenna. She has um, a wonderful website for anybody interested in just having a conversation about donation. And that's called Kidney Conversations. Beautiful, beautiful. And I'll also put that on my website, reginabrett.com. Well, my biggest takeaway today, Sarah, is don't worry about work. Don't worry about cleaning the house. Really live with no regrets. So thank you for that reminder. And I want to close with the answer, your answer to this question. Sarah, what is the best thing you do for yourself every day 
to create a life you love out of the life you have? I would say that I give back to others. And when I give back to others, it does come back tenfold. That is beautiful. Wow, that's a good reminder for all of us to give back. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being a guest on our show today. Thanks, Regina. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.